By now, I'm sure it may seem to you that God's people barely got settled in this land of promise before they found themselves in exile. In point of fact, that transition took about 700 years, a period that was punctuated by great geopolitical shifts in the region. Some would say that Israel became a people in the desert and then became a nation when they settled in Canaan around the 13th century BC. As with most emerging nations at the time, Israel was subject to the shifting political winds of the entire region. It was, after all, a very small sliver of a country in the midst of great empires. And these empires were constantly flexing their muscles and expanding their territory and exacting loyalties from the smaller nations of the region. From about 3000 to 1000 BC, during the time of enslavement, Egypt was the regional powerhouse. Most of its territory encompassed northern Africa, east of the Red Sea. And then as the former slaves entered Canaan, they were exiting northern Africa and entering into the region we identify as the Middle East. Here, a power struggle was in full gear. Assyria emerged as the major player just about the time of Solomon's rule, and its status lasted almost two centuries. During that time, native populations from smaller nation states were routinely deported so that Assyria could more easily maintain local control. The great temptations for Israel and Judah during this period revolved around methods for finding security in such a volatile world. One set of temptations revolved around military and political alliances that might be helpful. These alliances might be the combination of smaller nations against the larger ones, such as Assyria, or it might be a greater temptation to ally themselves with one larger empire against another. The other type of temptation, though, for God's people was to rely on rituals of faith at the expense of relationship with God and neighbor. It was Israel's prophets who tried to guide the people down a different path of complete trust in God, even in the face of obvious military and political expansionism. It was during this time that Israel divided north and south, with the northern kingdom succumbing to Assyria's supremacy. But Assyria's strength couldn't last forever. And as it waned, Babylon rose to power in the mid-8th century BC. The Babylonian Empire took over Assyrian lands and added lands further to the east and north. And with the northern kingdom of Israel defeated, the southern kingdom of Judah was subject to the Babylonian policies, including mass exiles of native populations. Again, this kind of policy was a way of stunting local control and thwarting any insurgencies that might emerge from oppressed native populations. And it was during this time and before Persia began to reach its dominance that the kingdom of Judah became a vassal state and then was defeated by Babylon. Judah's leaders were sent into exile in 587 or 586 BC. You know, little could they have known that the period of exile would last about 50 years. Now some would have been convinced that they would soon return to Jerusalem. After all, God had established Jerusalem as the divine dwelling. But there were others in exile who believed they would never see Jerusalem again. In fact, only the very young would return to this great city along with the next generation of those born in exile. Their memories then would not have been personal memories at all, but would have been shaped by stories they heard from their parents and grandparents, prayers that they crafted that recounted God's deeds in Jerusalem, and traditions that held them together as they waited. This week, you looked at a few passages from the Book of Lamentations, sometimes described as one long funeral dirge. 
God's people have lost the holy city. And in the process, they lost their sense of security. Psalm 125 begins with these words, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem and its holy temple, will last forever because God is trustworthy. So what happens then when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is reduced to rubble? Well, God's prophets tried to point out the false sense of security that had crept into Israel's community life. They called the people to repentance and then to build a firmer foundation. Jeremiah chapter 7 captures this beautifully. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Reform your ways and your deeds, so that I may remain with you in this place. Put not your trust in the deceitful words, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Only if you thoroughly reform your ways and your deeds, if each of you deals justly with his neighbor, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the orphan, and the widow, if you no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow strange gods to your own harm, will I remain with you in this place, in the land which I gave your fathers long ago and forever. You see, it would have been very tempting indeed to see the temple itself as not just a sign of God's presence, but kind of a guarantee of divine presence and a guarantee of power and protection. When Babylon made Judah a vassal state, the citizens could even then imagine that it would all turn out well for them. After all, the temple still stood as a testament to their God and the power that God wielded. But when Babylon crushed Judah and sent so many of its people into exile, what then? Babylon's god Marduk could easily have been seen as the victor, as more powerful than Judah's god. It wouldn't just be the taunting from others about their god, but their own internal doubts that caused the exile to be truly devastating. Most scholars agree that the physical and economic conditions while in exile were tolerable. Exiled peoples were permitted to live in their own agricultural communities, and there appears to have been modest trade and opportunities for community gathering. Their suffering was more mental and spiritual than it was physical. Psalm 137 is perhaps one of my favorite prayers to illustrate the tone of Israel's life in exile. It is truly a song of lament, mourning the loss not only of their beautiful city, but all that it embodied as a sign and symbol of God's covenant. This is a time of disorientation, where all that seemed to fit together to make sense of their world had really fallen into chaos and disorder. The vulnerability that is present in all mourning shines through the words of the psalm. There we read, By the rivers of Babylon we sat mourning and weeping when we remembered Zion. How could we sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? Anyone who has ever had an experience of loss where frustrating pain disorder seemed to reign supreme can probably relate to the raw emotion that comes through. Sometimes our memories, like those of Israel, taste both bitter and sweet. Pondering that truth helped me to recall an experience I'd like to share with you. It took place in the Hidalgo Valley in Mexico, which is located about 60 miles from Mexico City. This area was once an important region for the native Aztec people. Its name is derived from a late 18th century priest, Miguel Hidalgo y Castilla, who launched the movement for independence from Spain. A number of years ago, I participated in a two-week cultural exchange in Mexico. 
And one of our excursions brought us to this vast valley surrounded by very steep mountains. We were there to meet villagers who worked the fertile fields and specifically to see the pride of their village, a newly constructed simple meal grinder which helped the villagers sustain themselves more efficiently. This was also the location of a number of homes built locally by Habitat for Humanity. Made with cinder block and not much else, they stood as castles in this very impoverished community. Most of the members of the village had mismatched shoes if they owned shoes at all and the children wore whatever was on hand, including adult shirts worn as little girls' dresses. And their diet consisted mainly of whatever could be made from corn. While our group was visiting, we discovered that these families once owned the farmland that they now planted and harvested for other larger and wealthier landowners. They were proud of their work and at the same time lamented the loss of their ancestral land because of mounting debt. They loved the earth they plowed by hand, even if it benefited others more than their own families. So there you have the bitter and the sweet. These villagers lived as exiles in their own land, and their faces and words told stories that were filled with pride and with sorrow. The pilgrimage that they were on was not of their own choosing, but they definitely saw God's hand in their everyday lives and believed mightily that God would continue to lead them. Now God's people exiled in Babylon also looked for the hand of God in their situation. Some in exile eventually settled into their lives there. They met and married, intending to make the most of a situation that perhaps would not change. Others focused on how to maintain their identity when surrounded by a foreign culture and competing religious influences. It was during the time of the exile that religious practices were especially emphasized as a core part of Jewish identity. These included devout study of the Torah, weekly observance of the Sabbath, and the practice of circumcision, all of which would be carried back to a revived Israel when the exile came to an end. That ending came when Cyrus of Persia commanded troops that toppled Babylon and expanded the empire's territory. It was Cyrus who initiated a domestic policy that allowed all exiled peoples to return to their homelands. Frankly, it was a smart political move that would make for a more loyal citizenry. But Israel also saw it as part of God's plan. Now, it's true that most of the superpowers in the ancient Middle East are judged harshly by God, but on occasion they serve God's purposes. Some of the prophets described Assyria and Babylon as God's instruments, but they were usually instruments of God's purging and correction. For example, in the early part of Isaiah, Assyria is referred to as God's anger, my staff in wrath. But with Cyrus of Persia, however, the prophet Isaiah described a foreign ruler as an instrument of divine deliverance and salvation. God used him to restore Israel and to begin a new exodus, this time entering the promised land from the east rather than from Egypt, which was south and west. Listen to these words found at the end of Isaiah 44 and the start of chapter 45. I say of Cyrus, my shepherd, who fulfills my every wish, he shall say of Jerusalem, let her be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, Cyrus, whose right hand I grasp, subduing nations before him and making kings run in his service, opening doors before him and leaving the gates unbarred. I will go before you and level the mountains 
that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name, giving you a title, though you knew me not. Now here is a foreign ruler, someone who did not know Israel's God, and yet God's purposes are served through him. He's even called my shepherd and God's anointed. No doubt Israel reeled just from the thought that an outsider could actually be God's instrument. One of the lessons to be learned is that God is greater than the boundaries we set and can choose to act through circumstances and people who would be the least appropriate in our own view. Actually, I've often been struck by just that truth, that God uses the unlikeliest of characters. Think of Jacob, the one who plotted to steal his own brother's birthright. This same man fathered the men whose names are associated with the 12 tribes of Israel. Or how about Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who hid Joshua's spies and then allowed them to eventually conquer Jericho? Even the great saint Paul, the evangelist, had been a virulent persecutor of the early followers of Jesus, and then he too became one. And his preaching among the Gentiles is unquestionably monumental in the history of Christianity. God indeed uses unlikely methods to reach us. Nothing could be more unlikely than to send his son to become one of us, to live among us, and to proclaim a kingdom that was unlike anything at the time or since. Who could have predicted that God's purposes would be served through this tiny nation, this stubborn people who rebelled and returned over and over? Who could have predicted that when the Son of God came into the world, he would be born in such humble circumstances as a manger in a small town? The Gospel of Matthew picks up this unpredictability of God and also foundational biblical imagery when it tells the story of Joseph, Mary, and the infant Jesus escaping impending danger from Herod by traveling into Egypt. This journey was not of their choosing, but it was of necessity. It meant that life would be preserved and that God's goodness would once again be revealed in the journey of a small family. Discovering that Israel's King Herod planned to destroy Jesus, Joseph and Mary escape with him into Egypt and only return after the danger has passed. Scholars are unanimous in pointing to at least three biblical motifs that surface in the passage from the second chapter of Matthew. One motif is reminiscent of the patriarch Jacob and his family who escape into Egypt during a time of famine when the danger of death looms large. The other motif is reminiscent of the escape from Egypt and the entry into the land that God promised. And the third motif is that of return from exile. The biblical writers often crafted the way an event was recounted so that the faith-filled imagination could see the fulfillment of a long-ago plan in new and exciting ways. When describing Matthew 2, verses 13 to 21, where Joseph flees into Egypt with the Holy Family, Father Donald Sr. makes the following comment. He says, The rescue of Israel's hopes by going to Egypt and the protective hand of a Joseph can recall the patriarchal saga of Jacob, later to be Israel, and his clans seeking refuge in Egypt during the time of famine and finding themselves saved by Joseph. Further, upon the death of Herod and the return of the Holy Family to Israel, Senior notes, for Matthew, the movement of Jesus and his family from Egypt to the land of Israel recapitulates not only the foundational event of Exodus, 
but also Israel's deliverance from exile. Salvific events, he says, deeply embedded in the religious consciousness of Judaism. The story of Jesus is told in a way that is meant to remind Israel of foundational events, but is also told in a way that calls forth a new era of faithfulness and promise. Just as the exilic period was not so much a point in history as it was a conversion event for Israel, so the return of this child of promise is an invitation to believe once again that God does indeed accompany every generation on the journey of living and believing. Let's return once more and, and look at that ancient experience of exile in Babylon and consider one further lesson. One noted Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, has said that the exiles were securely and perhaps despondently exiles. They could not imagine any other status. They accepted Babylonian definitions of reality, not because they were convinced, but because no alternatives were available. These Babylonian claims seemed as if they would endure to perpetuity. This exiled community was in despair because it accepted Babylonian definitions of reality and did not know any others were available. That is, they were hopeless. They did not believe Yahweh could counter Babylon. Over the course of a generation, the prevailing culture of influence for many in exile had shifted them away from a covenant mentality and into one of adaptation, complacency, and even despair. In the process, some began to doubt God's presence, God's power, and God's love. Perhaps our greatest challenge today is to understand that whether or not we are physically displaced, we too are in exile. Our culture, with all of its treasures, also has elements that are in complete contradiction to what is revealed about the kingdom of God. It would be easy to become complacent and even to severely compromise our hopes. After all, the meek hardly seem to be inheriting the earth, and forgiving our enemies is not a slogan we hear too much about. Perhaps we are in danger of allowing our culture to define reality and stifle the message of the gospel. As Christians, we have a prophetic call that can help to address this malaise. In baptism, for many of us at the start of our own personal life pilgrimages, we were anointed to share in Jesus' role as priest, prophet, and king. You and I may never be an Isaiah or an Amos, but a prophetic stance in our culture is as profound and simple as keeping the gospel message front and center. Perhaps we can remind ourselves and others that persons matter more than products, that revenge does not have its own rewards, but forgiveness does, that mutual love is more powerful than independence, and that justice is more radical than victory. These are indeed radical ideas, but they are rooted in the biblical tradition, exhibited in the words and actions of Jesus, and sadly, seldom embraced fully. It's been my experience that the more I immerse myself in Scripture, the more I allow its words and images and ideas to kind of wash over me, the more certain I am that there is an alternative to the prevailing cultural messages that can sometimes eat away at our hope. That alternative is what the Christian tradition calls the kingdom of God, the kingdom that in Jesus is already in our midst but not yet fully realized. It's the kingdom that Jesus reveals to his followers in the past and in the present, and in the midst of our communities, we can see glimpses of its power and its simplicity. We're not on this pilgrimage alone. We need our communities of faith to walk together on this journey. <music>